Kia ora and welcome everybody to Indelible City, a conversation with Louisa Lim. So, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam Suchdeva. I'm the National Affairs Editor for Newsroom and author of The China Tightrope on the changing New Zealand-China relationship. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the star of this evening, Louisa Lim. Louisa covered China and Hong Kong for more than two decades as a correspondent for the BBC and NPR, and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Guardian. Her first book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Visited, Revisited, was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize and the Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. But we are here today to discuss her most recent book, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong, which is a deeply researched and personal account of Hong Kong's untold history and uncertain future. I, I wanted to start where, where you do, and uh, that is with the, the King of Kowloon, this incredible figure who sort of features throughout the entirety of the book, and you describe him early on as a, a toothless, disabled trash collector with mental health issues, uh, <laughs> renowned for his misshapen, childlike calligraphy. Um, can you tell me a little bit about his history and how you came to hear of him and, and what makes him such a compelling character? Yeah, I mean, he was perhaps not the most ideal person to base a book on because by the time that I started writing it, he'd already died and his life was basically shrouded in mystery. Lots of people knew him, but um, when I started tracking them down and talking to them, uh, Nobody seemed to know anything about him, and everyone disagreed massively about all kinds, even the most basic things about him. But I'd always been fascinated with him, because when I was growing up in Hong Kong when I was a child, um, I used to see his calligraphy in the streets. And he had this really interesting history in that he believed that the peninsula of Kowloon, opposite Hong Kong, that had been ceded to the British in the 1860s, he believed that land had belonged to his family and had been stolen from them when it was given to the British. And so he called himself the King of Kowloon. And he spent 50 years just writing calligraphy all over Hong Kong. It was like on the walls and the lampposts and the post boxes, and particularly the electricity boxes. So these bits of street furniture that you don't normally notice. And he would write on them his family tree. He would write 20-something generations of his family tree. It was almost always sort of washed away or painted over by the government. And, you know, he sometimes got done for um, criminal damage or vandalism, things like that. Um, and, you know, he, it was just so memorable because his calligraphy was really misshapen calligraphy. He'd only done two years of schooling, and it was not balanced and beautiful and harmonious and learned at all, like calligraphy is supposed to be. It was just very, very distinctive. You know, when I was a child, people just thought he was crazy. You know, they might cross the street to get away from him. But... In 1997, just as Hong Kong was about to return to Chinese sovereignty, he had an art exhibition, and it was this sort of circus. It was a scandal, and not a single piece sold. But then over time, he became this, this figure. You know, he was the first Hong Kong artist to exhibit at the Venice Biennale. His work started selling in Sotheby's and Christie's on the auction blocks. He became Hong Kong's most valuable artist. You know, 
people were writing songs to him. They were, he, people were writing poetry about him. He was playing cameos in films. And he became this figure that when he died, he was, um, you know, the newspapers had full page wraparound commemorative papers with headlines saying, the king is dead. And I just was fascinated by people choosing their own king and why, you know, how his strength of will had been that great that he managed to be seen as a kind of king. Mm. So I wanted to find his story and um, I started by just sort of tracing back and trying to talk to people who had known him or worked with him. And when I started, I didn't realize what kind of a journey that was going to take me on. What does his story tell us about Hong Kong's story? Partly it was that, almost that Forrest Gumpian thing where he was, I felt like he was breadcrumbing my trail as I went to interview the people um, who had known him. It later on emerged, once the protests started in 2019, that I already knew so many of the important figures um, because they had written about the King of Kowloon or they had, um, you know, done work with him or they had known him in various ways. And many of Hong Kong's intellectuals, you know, the academics and scholars and journalists had written about him. Um, so for me, that turned out it was a coincidence, but I couldn't help but notice how, you know, time after time I would read about someone in the newspaper and I would already know them and have already been talking to them about the King of Kowloon. So that was the kind of Forrest Gumpian part of it. So in 2019, these huge protests broke out in Hong Kong. You know, it's a city of seven million people. So, you know, population slightly bigger than that of New Zealand. But sometimes two million people at one protest took part in a single protest. And it just struck me that their concerns were the same as the King of Kowloon's that he had been talking about dispossession and loss and sovereignty and all those issues, but he'd been doing it for so long that, you know, when he started, people thought he was mad. And yet these were the very issues at the heart of Hong Kong's political crisis. So from that perspective, when I went back and I said to people, you know, what do you think of him now? What do you think of him in retrospect? It was interesting. People would say, oh, maybe, you know, he was like King Lear. It's only when you're mad that you can see the truth. Or maybe he was, you know, a shaman, someone who would show us what our future would be. And, you know, someone who could, a prophet was something that one politician um, in exile said to me. It just seemed like he had been in his own sort of particular distinctive way really ahead of, ahead of his time. Mm. And this, this idea of you know, him as a, as a prophet of sorts, as a, as a legend, as a, as a myth, why, why is that so important in understanding where Hong Kong is today, that the role of myth in, in all of this? Because I think this is, I mean, it's a book about who is allowed to write history, and Hong Kong's in a particular place where, uh, you know, it was governed by Britain for 140 plus years, then it was governed by China, and each 
colonial ruler has written their own histories of Hong Kong, and its histories have been imposed upon it. Hong Kongers have never been able to write their own history. And I love this kind of um, rebellious, mythical history that Hong Kong has created for themselves. You know, one is the, the king of Kowloon, this king who you know, clearly wasn't a king, but he had a place in the imagination. And then the Lo Ting was this really interesting uh, character that was in some of the ancient literature, this figure, half man, half fish, so with a fish's head and scales down the back, but human legs. And, you know, there's references to him in literature going all the way back to the Tang Dynasty, sort of 700 to, to 900 AD. Um, and apparently, this came from this sort of mythical ancestor, uh, a general called Lu Xun, who was fighting against the central, um, the emperor, and fled with 100,000 men, you know, as far away as possible, all the way down to Hong Kong, and where they lived in caves and ate so many fish that they turned half man, half fish. <laughs> and this was this myth that Hong Kong authors um, and art curators, uh, they started doing exhibitions again in 1997 about the Lo Ting. And again, it was this idea of a, um, an amphibian between two worlds, not quite man, not quite fish, suspended. These were like such interesting ways of looking at history where Hong Kongers were creating their own ancestors that were semi-mythical, but also, uh, you know, they were rebellious people. They were uh, this, you know, the Lo Ting were insurgents who were fighting against central authority. And those are the ancestors that Hong Kongers chose for themselves. So I love that idea of re telling history, you know, when you have a Chinese history of Hong Kong and a British history of Hong Kong, you know, sometimes the actual, you know, those histories are just as mythical as the histories that Hong Kongers write for themselves. And then that's exactly right, and I love the line you have about sort of Hong Kong as a myth, a shifting, slippery entity that like a sea monster resurfaces from the cresting waves at different places under different aliases at different times. It's just fantastic. So is that, do you get the sense that it is, yeah, it's somewhat mythical itself, and given that, that contested narrative and the sort of complexities in terms of how it's come to be? Well, I mean, it's a very real place. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, you know, for me, it was looking at the space between those histories and the fact that, you know, so my mother um, had written a lot about Hong Kong. She had been a, um, a Latin teacher. And when she retired, she decided that she couldn't find the books that she wanted about Hong Kong. She wanted a cultural heritage guidebook to Hong Kong, which would have, um, you know, all those in, almost indigenous Hong Kong, not colonial sites, but, you know, the sacred trees and the earth god shrines and the clan halls and the temples. She had this incredible library of books about Hong Kong, 
but they were books that she had collected over the years because um, my parents moved there when I was very young. And so she gave me all of her history books. She came to Australia to visit and she didn't bring any luggage. She just brought <laughs> hand baggage and suitcases full of books. And then when I read those, all of her history books were British history books. And I was just struck by the fact that there were no Chinese people named in them. There were no Chinese names, no Chinese faces. And it seemed astonishing to me that you could write history of a place without any of those people in it. You know, it was just sort of laundry lists of governors and the kinds of things that they had done, the laws that they had imposed on the people. And so I wanted to try and write a different kind of history. And maybe some of it is mythical, but maybe that's okay too. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing erasure of a, of a different sort as well currently, aren't we, with the, you know, how the Chinese government, the Chinese state is trying to reinvent some of the narratives around, you know, the Hong Kong protests, even Hong Kong's history as a British colony. What can these myths do to sort of counteract that? Is it, do you think they can endure beyond some of these efforts that we're seeing by, by the Chinese state? I mean, it's, it is really astonishing. I mean, you know, it's not something that sort of happened out the blue. Even before 1997, China sent its historians to Hong Kong to write Chinese histories of Hong Kong. So it was already laying the groundwork for those histories that um, it would tell, the story that it would tell, the story of Hong Kong that it would tell. Um, and what we've seen is that since the protests in 2019, and in particular since the national security legislation was imposed in 2020, that move has really gone into overdrive. That erasure and the rewriting of history is kind of, it's astonishing that we can almost see it happening in real time. So textbooks are literally being rewritten and um, in schools and in universities with a national security focus um, in every subject. But when it comes to history, the new line is that Hong Kong was never a British colony. Um, because, you know, even though you've got parks named after Queen Victoria and you've got roads like Queen's Road, the main road, in Hong Kong, uh, the argument Beijing puts forward is that China never accepted those unequal treaties that ceded Hong Kong to the British. So Hong Kong was never a colony. It was more like a, an occupied territory than a colony. And I think those attempts to rewrite history, they're really, um, it's an assault on Hong Kong identity. It recasts Hong Kong and Hong Kongers in a different light, um, you know, as not people who went to Hong Kong seeking a, be a better life, more economic opportunities, uh, you know, more freedoms than they were allowed in, in China, but as, um, you know, inhabitants of an occupied territory. So I think it's an assault on identity. Um, as regards the question of erasure, I mean, Again, that is something that we see in real time. We see um, books disappearing from the library shelves. And actually, my first book has just, was one of the ones that has just disappeared from public libraries in Hong Kong. Um, and it was one of many. One newspaper said 40% of political books have gone from the library shelves. So overnight, that's just a, 
a whole lot of history disappearing, but also the media. You know, 12 newspapers have shut down. Um, some have been shut down, others have shut themselves because of uh, the fear that the national security law, you know, might endanger some of their reporters because it's being um, retroactively used. But for example, Apple Daily, which was the most popular newspaper when it shut down, it pulled all its archives from the internet. And that, you know, was astonishing to me because, again, that's another way where history is just gone overnight. We're seeing that over and over again, you know, films being pulled from um, film festivals, art disappearing off the website of art museums, you know, it's... Um, it is an assault. What, what do you think is most important for people to understand about the history of Hong Kong and Hong Kongers when looking at the, the current situation? I mean, I think that point as well is key because it is one point where the British and the Chinese actually concurred, they agreed, and their persistent line that they used to say is, you know, Hong Kongers are not political people. They only care about money. They're very materialistic. This is not true, and it's never been true. You know, all the way back to Lucian in the fourth century, um, that mythical rebellious ancestor. Um, but we've seen over time that repeating and repeating, you know, there were uh, in, in the 11th century, there were these um, uprisings over salt farming because Hong Kong people were illegally harvesting salt. Um, and then when the British took over, um, th there were all kinds of, there was all kinds of unrest, there were strikes, there was even a, a very short war, um, the Six-Day War against the British uh, takeover, the least of the new territories. Um, so I think that, again, is a sort of imposed myth, this idea that Hong Kongers were not political, you know, almost as if colonial rulers hoped that if they said it enough times, it would become true. And of course, it isn't true. Um, you know, I think now it's very hard for Hong Kongers, particularly Hong Kongers inside Hong Kong, to show any kind of resistance. Um, since the national security legislation passed, um, open sort of protests really hard there's um, really there's in the last three years they had the first protest just the other week and it was this sort of extraordinary sort of policed event where they had 80 people and they had to wear numbered lanyards around their necks and they had to carry the cordon around them as they walked and you know they were told don't wear black and yellow because these were the colors of the anti-extradition protests in 2019. So again, I think that um, the authorities are hoping that by saying it, they can make it true, but actually what we're seeing is Hong Kongers are leaving Hong Kong because they're not, they are political people mm. and they're not willing to live under those, those kind of strictures. Yeah, well, I mean, this idea that they're not political, what was it, two million people out of a city of seven million marching in the streets in one day? It's incredible. I don't know, can't imagine many other cities anywhere in the world where you would get a third of the population protesting against anything. And it was an extraordinary experience to be 
part of a crowd like that, you know, with these city streets that are sort of six lanes across and every lane of the highway is just crammed with bodies. You know, if you looked on it from above, it's, it's like uh, a dot painting because each dot would be somebody's head. And every space was filled with people. It was sort of the most extraordinary demonstration of people power. And yet, uh, was it four years on, we're seeing a city which has been transformed. Mm. And, and you are, in the book, uh, quite critical, I think, of the, the British management governance of, of Hong Kong. There's a lot of focus now in the modern day about what China is doing, but actually you do talk about that, that history and how they mishandled, I guess, their administration to start with, but also the handover to, to China in 1997. What, what do you think are the most egregious failures by the, the, the British governors of the time, and how culpable are they for, for what we see today? Um, I think the most egregious failure was the failure to allow Hong Kong people any part in any discussion. So when the discussions were going on with China about um, Hong Kong's return, there were no Hong Kong people allowed at the table. In fact, they weren't even allowed in Beijing. So, you know, that was not something that the British um, you know, did by mistake. That was their strategy. It was British strategy to lock Hong Kongers out of that debate. And they really didn't want to hear what Hong Kongers had to say. So when I was researching the book, I came across this archive of interviews in a, in a library in Oxford. And it was extraordinary to me because they were interviews with the most senior Hong Kong advisors to the British at that time. And they hadn't been able to speak openly because they'd signed the Official Secrets Act. And also because they were honorable people. They were advising the British. They knew that if they spoke openly and they said they didn't like these agreements, there would be a massive loss in, of confidence. So they were kind of muzzled and locked into this silence. But they had given these interviews in the 80s and 90s to a political scientist, Steve Tsang, who was at Oxford University at the time. And the agreement was that these interviews would be kept secret for 30 years. And then they'd just kind of been lost on a library shelf. And then when I found them and read through them, I was, you know, I was astonished because they were so emotional. They were really frank. You know, these really senior people, some of whom later turned and became pro-China. Um, they were really so upset and angry and scared and panicking, and you could see all these emotions coming out of their interviews. And, you know, the thing that struck me was the questions that they raised, the weaknesses with the agreements that had been made were all the ones that came back to bite. You know, the, the causal, the problems later on, you know, they said there's no timetable for democracy. They said, what are we going to, you know, what's going to happen if China violates the agreement? Where is the monitoring mechanism? And what's going to, you know, where's the role for Hong Kong people? And so I think that was, um, that was the biggest failure and that was a strategic choice by the British. Mm. They, uh, you know, they, they saw it almost like a game. In negotiations, they like to use these sort of metaphors of card playing. They'd say to Hong Kong advisors, oh, um, you know, uh, 
our, our hand is not that strong, things like that. That, I think, was a real failure. And one of the things that their um, advisors complained about was they thought that the British just didn't understand how to negotiate with the Chinese. They thought they didn't un understand the culture. They also thought they didn't understand the language because there were no native Chinese speakers on Britain's negotiating team. So they could see what was happening and they thought the British were, were being played. Um, you know, at one point, one of them, Sir Si Yuan Chung, who was the most senior, he said that um, he was trying to describe what it was like and he said, you know, it's like shopping. If I went to shop in Harrods, I wouldn't try to haggle over the price. But if, I, if I'm buying something in China, you know, with any negotiation, the contract is just the start of the negotiation. And the British don't understand that. So it was, you know, for me, it was this astonishing kind of fly-on-the-wall insight that took me into the room, those rooms that had always been closed. Um, and perhaps rightly so, because if you look into the room, you see the failures of the British and, you know, deliberate failures. They weren't mistakes. The British didn't want to con consult Hong Kong people. It's an impossible question to answer, possibly, but, <laughs> you know, if they had included Hong Kong as the British, if they had taken it more seriously, tried to put some of those safeguards in, in place and hold the Chinese to their word around the, the maintenance of, of Hong Kong's freedoms, do, do you think that would, could have made a difference? Would we see a Hong Kong today that isn't as, as oppressed where political liberties aren't as, as, as sort of compacted? Or would we end, have ended up in the same position anyway, given what we've seen under Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese regime? It is an impossible question. Um, but I, did, I asked that question to Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong, the last British governor. He said that he thought things could have been different. I mean, I also think it's, it's a Chinese strategy and it's an argument that we often hear about Tiananmen as well, about the suppression of the student protests in 1918. Oh, well, you know, it was always going to happen. But actually there, there were so many stages where, you know, things could have happened differently. The outcomes are never predetermined. And I think, you know, diplomacy is not also predetermined. Uh, so I think there were other opportunities that were missed or um, overlooked on purpose. Mm. And you were, of course, in Hong Kong for the handover ceremony, and you write about that in the book and just the emotion that was being felt by so many people. Did you, did you have a sense of, of what was to come, or did you, did, was there a hope that you know, this might work out for the best, that, that the status quo could be maintained? It was a really... Um complicated kind of time. I think it's interesting because if you ask people how they felt, and I was the same, it was often really hard to sum up that emotion. You know, people were almost numb. It was hard. It seemed so peculiar to be handed back, you know, like a, uh, from one country to another. Um, and I think, you know, people were resigned there was a sense that um, we don't have any say, but this is going to happen, so you know, maybe we can make the best of it. You know, or what other choice is there? And I think, because after the handover, the for the first few years, that 
formula of one country, two systems, which was supposed to uh, be the kind of ruling formula that worked quite well. And I think that kind of lulled people into a false sense of security that everything would be all right. I mean, you know, there was a promise that Hong Kong would remain, its way of life would remain unchanged for 50 years. So that would have taken Hong Kong to um, 20, from 1997 to 2047. But now we're um, halfway through and the way of life has changed completely. Mm. It, was there a, a sort of a break point or a tipping point at which you realised and Hong Kong has realised that that was where things were heading, that there was going to be that breakdown, or has it been a sort of gradual closing and, and narrowing of, of, of lines? There have been a number of breakpoints, you know, as and everything, a lot of it revolved around uh, timelines for democracy, because at the beginning the Chinese said, oh no, you know, we will give you, we'll, we'll increase the franchise. The eventual aim is democracy. Maybe you can have it in, in, in 2012. And then that kept being pushed out and out and out. And so I think um, there have been moments, and normally there are moments of street protest. So in 2011, 2012, there were very large protests by secondary schools, children led by Joshua Wong, who was 15 at the time. And there were protests against uh, national education, so sort of Chinese-style patriotic education, being introduced in schools. And overnight, 100,000 school children sort of surrounded the government building and had a sit-in, and they got their way. The, that was not introduced. And then 20, uh, 14, 15 was the umbrella movement. That time, that was a uh, occupation of the streets, of three streets, for 79 days. And I think people were emboldened by the success of the first campaign, and so they occupied the streets. But after the umbrella movement, there was no, there was no um, concessions. There were no concessions on the part of the Chinese. Then, when it came to 2019, that was the moment, that was the breaking point that you talk about. Um, I think people felt then that if they didn't try and push back, there would be nothing left uh, to push back for. And I think people really had a sense as well, even from the start, that it was probably it would probably not work, but at least they tried. Mm. What, what was it like witnessing those, those protests in 2019 and the, the severity of the crackdown from authorities? I think you talk about the use of, of tear gas that had been used during the umbrella movement, and it, but very sparingly, and that was a, a huge deal in the end to see this indiscriminate use of, of tear gas and, and, and many other uh, weapons and, and an attempt to quell the protests. How, how shocking was that for you? It was really shocking. During the Umbrella Movement, um, they used 87 canisters of tear gas. And I know the number because I had a T-shirt with 87 printed on it, which was given out to protesters. So people remembered that was thought to be, you know, a figure of shame. And at the time, before the Umbrella Movement, people always thought of the police force as Asia's finest, you know, very disciplined. And then, in 2019, when they began tear gassing, um, you know, it was used so much that, uh, 
you know, first it was just at weekends, then it was weekends at night, and then it was at midday, and then, you know, people were getting tear gassed in the street, people were getting tear gassed, you know, there was, Hong Kong is so densely populated that the tear gas was sort of leaching up um, into old people's homes, and they, old people in these old people's homes were being tear gassed as they sat in their home, people, you know, and so it even became a thing that people said, you know, the meaning of a Hong Konger is if you've tasted tear gas. And, you know, reporters would make jokes about it. If you'd say, what's it at like out on the streets? They'd say, oh, today it's a tear gas buffet. Um, so it was, it was shocking, and it, it became very dangerous. A couple of people lost eyes from having blanks shot at them. When I was writing the book and I was going out and watching the protests, I sort of kept upgrading my equipment until I had a full-face respirator. Um, but, you know, I got tear gas quite a lot of times. I got pepper sprayed once. Um, and it, it, was, it was really astonishing to watch just how quickly, uh, you know, a police force that people had thought of as so disciplined just fell back on the use of tear gas. And, you know, there were also a lot of arrests. There was also a lot of beating. And it got to a point where, you know, people were being pulled off the street and arrested if they were wearing that clothes. And, you know, I remember one day I was going back from a protest and I just saw someone opening a door in this whole line of kids going out. And they were all wearing brightly colored clothes. And I realized that this had been their safe house. Someone had let them in, and they'd let them in to change their clothes. And they'd all taken off their black protest clothes and changed their clothes and were now trying to get home after a protest without being arrested. Um, you know, the number of arrests was astonishing. So it was, it was shocking. Mm. And your children were, were living through all of this as well and joining in on some of the protests. So what was it like as a parent? you know, seeing what was happening to other, other young Hong Kongers and, and wondering about what could happen to your own children? I mean, it was terrifying because, you know, at the time my son was 15 and the first time they let off pro, uh, tear gas, he, he was out and, you know, he went home. But I knew that there were so many other kids on the street that were his age and they were making these decisions that were gigantic decisions, you know, I interviewed a couple of 15-year-olds at a protest, and I, you know, remember saying to them, you know, the sentence for rioting is 10 years. Do you, you know, you realize that if you, if you get picked up, you know, you, you face the sentence of 10 years, and they said, you know, we know that, this is a choice that we've made. And it just really, for me as a parent, it brought it home to me just how young the protesters were, and the kind of impact that it would have on them. Mm. And, and that, I think, the, the personal stories and your personal story is woven throughout this thing. You talk about, I guess, the difficulty of doing that, because you have that um, journalistic instinct, as I do, to sort of to stand back, you know, we've got to be impartial observers, we don't put ourselves into the narrative. So how did you, how did you get to grips with it in the end and, and, and you know, find yourself comfortable enough to sort of put, put yourself into the narrative? I was quite reluctant to do that, to be honest. I didn't, um, at first, I thought that I would write it as a purely journalistic book. 
and my editor had different ideas, and I think it was because every time that I was writing it about myself and my family, it kind of leapt off the page. It just became so much more personal. And then for me, it was that problem of, well, you cannot really remove yourself from the story because the city is a part of me. It's where, it's where I grew up. It's the city that really made me who I am. So, you know, can I really do that? Can I really write um, this book without me in it? Because quite a few members of my family have uh, been involved in Hong Kong's history in various ways, sort of distant relatives have been... Um, one of them was a governor, uh, the most racist governor that Hong Kong has ever had, which, you know, shocked me, because when I was a child, I didn't know that. I used to boast about him in the playground. It was only when I wrote the book that I found out that he had been responsible for um, not allowing Chinese people to live in certain parts of Hong Kong, and he had campaigned against having Eurasian children like me in schools with white children, and I hadn't known that about my own family. So, you know, it was also for me a question of the colonial project, you know, and how close that is to me. And, and my family, we were all part of that colonizing project as well. So I, I think, um, in a way, it was the only way that I could write it honestly, was to, to write it from a personal perspective. Mm. And you, you haven't been back to Hong Kong since... Was it 2019, early 2020? 2020, yeah, 2020. just before COVID. Uh, you know, with the national security law and its implications, basically it's very unlikely you would, you would want to take the risk of going back because there is a very real risk of you being, you know, prosecuted, uh, arrested. How does that feel, I guess, knowing that a city that is, is so integral to your identity, to your family's identity, is off limits for the foreseeable future? I mean, it's really hard. It's a really sad thing for me, but I also, I knew it when I was writing the book. There came a point that I realized that if I wanted to write the book um, that I wanted to write, then I would have to be okay with the idea that I would not go back. Because otherwise, I would constrain myself. I would be thinking, oh, if I say this, maybe I'll be able to go back, or you know, maybe I just don't say that. And I didn't want to put those limits on, on myself. So I already knew when I was writing the book that I probably wouldn't be able to go back. But um, when the national security legislation was announced, um, I knew immediately. So I had a flat in Hong Kong. I always thought that I would go and live there, but I put it on the market the next day because I knew that it would be impossible. And it was, it is really hard, but there are so many other Hong Kongers with deeper roots in Hong Kong who have picked up everything and left. And I think I've been in a really a different and a much more fortunate situation in that I already had a job outside. My, you know, I don't have family that I need to protect. I'm in a situation where I can write what I like. Um, and I think many other Hong Kongers don't have those freedoms. They have parents or pensions, um, or children in schools, and they have to be much more careful about what they say. And I mean, you know, for me it was a problem because it, it was also that case of, well, what right do I have to write this book, you know? Um, 
I, you know, I was not born in Hong Kong. I am half Chinese, half English, but my father is Singapore Chinese. You know, I'm not a native Hong Konger. My Cantonese is terrible. But then I also thought that, uh, in a way, it makes it easier for me to write because I don't have the same constraints as a Hong Konger. And also, I had this feeling that what we need at the moment is as many Hong Konger stories as possible, from all kinds of Hong Kongers. You know, people who were born there, people who moved there from China, people who moved there from other places, anyone who sees themselves as a Hong Konger. Because what we are seeing is China's attempt to really impose a singular narrative, China's narrative, and this is what Hong Kong is, and this is what Hong Kong's history is. And one way to push back is by having multiple stories you know, lots of histories and lots of personal stories of Hong Kong. And I think, you know, that multitude of voices is important, particularly now, because that's one way of pushing back against that erasure. Mm. What would it take for some of those freedoms, those liberties, that, that history, identity of Hong Kong to be returned? Do you think it's possible once Xi Jinping, whenever he steps down as, as China's leader, if there's a regime change there, do you, do you see any, any reason for, for optimism looking out, you know, even decades or, or centuries into the future? I mean, the trend lines are bad. Uh, we're seeing tightenings of controls, uh, uh, restriction, you know, freedom in China is narrowing dramatically as well. What happens in China is crucial to what happens in Hong Kong now. Um, so I think we would have to see some change in China before Hong Kong, you know, before Hong Kong policy would be different. Um, I suppose when you talk to uh, activists and politicians from Hong Kong, um, you know, I guess they make two points. One is that those voices and those freedoms do still exist, they're just happening outside Hong Kong. It's, it's no longer possible in Hong Kong. And the other example that people sometimes point to is Taiwan, which was under martial law for 40 years, and nobody expected that it would end when it did with Chang Guo, and yet it did. And I think um, that is an example that Hong Kongers look to for an example of change where change is unexpected. The timeline for that is not great either. Taiwan was 40 years of martial law. What, what should countries like New Zealand be doing to support Hong Kong now? We uh, suspended our extradition treaty um, in 2019, I think, but we still have some forms of cooperation. We actually had the Hong Kong Police Force, a delegation here, giving tips on right policing, which was quite disconcerting. So it caused a bit of a stir. But what, what, what can we be doing now to, to help protect Hong Kong and, and Hong Kongers? I mean, I'd say, first of all, to um, keep monitoring and watching and keep Hong Kong in the news, to notice what goes on there and for that to be... Um, written about and talked about and discussed. And I think politically as well, it's a question of looking at corporations and who they're with and what they're doing. Um, that example that you raise of Hong Kong riot police coming to train New Zealand police, that's uh, something that seems extraordinary that it could have happened. 
but I think there's often not a lot of oversight over these kind of things. Um, I think Hong Kong communities are also um, lobbying for all kinds of um, different things. Um, one example, in Australia that's big is there's still Australian judges on Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal, even though the legal system is completely changed. And, you know, the common law is subservient to national security law in Hong Kong. I mean, that's the kind of example where uh, you would think there might be some kind of oversight and lobbying. Mm. But I think New Zealand, maybe not. I don't know if there's any judges there. Yeah, work in progress, I think. Do we have any questions from the floor? Do you know if your book, The Delectable Sister, is banned in Hong Kong at the moment? It's not available in big bookstores. <laughs> One reason is these words down the front, which means like go or sort of hooray or add oil, Hong Kongers. And it was in a court case, um, an expert told the court that this, these words were potentially subversive. Um, and it, I was actually really impressed because my publishers, we had to have a sort of big conversation about what were the potential consequences of publishing a book with potentially subversive words on the front. And they said, no, we don't want to self-censor. We're going to go ahead anyway. So it's, it's not on sale in big bookstores, but there are a couple of very small independent bookstores where you can still buy it. I'm a Hong Konger, but I'm not a writer. Um, <laughs> what kind of advice would you give about you know, keeping a historical record of Hong Kongs but don't know where to start? <laughs> I mean, I think one thing is about building communities. Um, I was in Melbourne when Denise Ho, who's a very famous Hong Kong pop star, but very politically active, she came and she gave a talk to Hong Kongers. And somebody asked her the same question. They said, what, what can we do? And she said, turn around and talk to the person next to you, find out who they are, make friends, build these networks of, of Hong Kong people. Personal histories are important, and particularly in the current context. And I think when you build communities and start even gathering your own family stories, that, that's already uh, something. But also, you know, that's where you begin to... Um, build up ne networks that can change things. So I would say meet other Hong Kongers in New Zealand and talk to them and collect their stories too. Yeah, um, so I am also from Hong Kong and I recently moved to New Zealand because of the national security law. Um, Apple Daily is quite well known as a very far right newspaper as well. I know what you're saying, and it's certainly true, Apple Daily has had some moments of infamy. <laughs> I mean, you know, they've done things that I think are uh, not very ethical. Um, there were often times when they would run front-page pictures of, you know, really gory stuff that newspapers elsewhere wouldn't, wouldn't run. And it is a paper with a distinct political line. But I think the problem is what we're seeing is such a shrinkage in opinion. Everything that is not absolutely 100% pro-government has been shut down or has been sort of pulled into line that there is no diversity of opinion anymore. And I think that's the problem. The problem is not what Apple Daily did or didn't do. The problem is that you have had a very vibrant media 
and now you don't have that anymore. And, and I think that's where, how freedom gets lost, when those different, you know, even if papers are sometimes not great, at least they offer different views, and that's no longer available. I think, for me, the message is, the important thing is to try and keep Hong Kong top of mind, to keep thinking about it and raising it and talking <laughs> about those, those things that, uh, you know, may, may be erased and forgotten to keep those memories alive. But I, I, will, um, I did do a talk in um, Australia to the Hong Kong community there, and it was so interesting because someone left Hong Kong after the protests, and his question was, um, I really want to know, what can Hong Kongers in exile do, apart from being the very best in their fields, whatever their fields are? <laughs> and I just thought that was such a brilliant answer because that shows that Hong Kong spirit that, you know, wherever you are in the world, you'll not only continue but excel in your fields, no matter what your field is. So to me, that really sort of um, summed up the spirit um, that I think many Hong Kongers have, because it, it is really hard starting a new life somewhere completely different. And I think, you know, part of it is both moving forward, but remembering the past and really actively remembering it, because it is at risk.